we come together, we, we, we love your name. We rejoice in your goodness. We love your word. We gather together as a people who want to understand your word more clearly. And Lord, we're also tired Sunday evening. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for the task of, of learning this evening and applying ourselves. That you'd strengthen me for the task of sharing these things. Uh, Lord, uh, that you'd pour out your spirit upon us even in a, a study context like this for your word is spiritually discerned. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into the lesson, I want to take a moment and let's just talk about the homework lesson from last week. Um, and, and there were a couple of things. Mostly the, the homework lesson was to describe the redemptive context or geography of each of the following books. And so, um, remember what we talked about, what is the redemptive context? What is that redemptive geography, if you will? Um, anyone want to remind us of what that is? Right, so where, where in the storyline of the Bible, in this case a whole book, or maybe a particular passage, where does it fit? Or where in the storyline of redemption, you could say? I mean, in other words, if the Bible is the story of God redeeming us, redeeming humanity, then where in that story are we with this book? And so I listed some books, Exodus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Romans, and we could pick any book, but just wanted to kind of throw those out there. So let's take Exodus. Where, where in this storyline, in the storyline of, of, of redemption, is Exodus? Yes, Katie. Okay, yeah. I mean, so certainly it's it's either at or near the beginning, right? I mean, so uh, it's it's that. What else could we say about it, or anything we could fill that out with? Okay, so it's it's this element of being freed from bondage. So it's beginning to paint for us a, a, a picture of what redemption itself is, right? I mean, because here they're being freed from bondage. We don't know anything about the cross and, and, and spiritual redemption yet. That comes later in the storyline if chronology is moving this way, right? But we're getting a picture here of what coming out of slavery is. What does it mean to come out of slavery? Little do they know at this point that they're slaves to sin. But they can understand slavery. And so God's going to begin teaching them something about that. It's good. What else can we is there anything else we might might say about that? Rita. Right. So they're they're going to begin to get Yeah, they're going to start seeing that there's something bigger than the Egyptian slavery. That's a task. So we, we, that story begins to become clearer, although, you know, you have hints of it. Obviously, Genesis 6 and, and so on. Uh, given the law. That's an important element, right? So the law, Sinai. Now, is that significant in the biblical storyline? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that we get some laughter in the room. It, that would be like a major thing, right? I mean, that's like... A big deal because that's going to be something 
that is developed through the rest of the Old Testament and spoken to in, throughout the New, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's about as big as you can get, okay? So, Sinai, that's a, you know, different kinds of maps, right? Okay, if we're mapping chronology, you map times and years. If it's a topographical map, there's a big mountain here called Sinai. You need to remember that mountain, okay? I mean, that's a big mountain in the storyline of Scripture, and it's going to stand higher than, than the Himalayans, okay, in biblical story. It's, it's, just, it's bigger than Mount Everest, biblically speaking, uh, theologically speaking, not in altitude. You, you, you tracking with me here? Uh, so it's important to remember that. Okay. Anything else we'd like to say about this? It's the first, or I'm going to say possibly second time. We'll get to that in a second. God came and lived among the people. <laughs> and, okay, first, the first technically being when? Garden of Eden, right? Man was kicked out of the garden, right? Now, what's going to happen? God's going to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He's bringing them back into a garden with his presence ultimately that's what defines fruitfulness it, it's at the source of dwelling with god god is the source of life and so you get this kind of a, a story that begins to develop more and more it, it picks up on the story of genesis and, and develops now this what god is doing in, in picture form if you will sometimes i refer to the old testament and i i please i hope you don't hear this as 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 use an old Catholic term, sacrilegious. Um, but, but I think it, it, it's a picture that helps me. Uh, the Old Testament I think of sometimes as the, the world's biggest flannel board. You know how in uh, children's ministry you get the flannel board and you cut out Moses and you cut out figures and you know, you're trying to teach the lesson so you throw these things up on the board so they, they can see something while you're going because you know, visually people learn. Well, the Old Testament is God trying to teach us concepts that we couldn't get apart from some visual aids. So he's got an entire nation or two or ten or a hundred that he's using to, to illustrate life. And he's teaching us things through history itself. That's his flannel board, if you will. He can throw things as big and real as life up and, and do things with them so that we can get the story. Um, so that's Exodus. Okay, we could say much more, but um, what about Isaiah? Where, where is Isaiah fitting in this storyline? What, what, what can we say about Isaiah? Okay, so... Yeah, so if, if the Garden of Eden is here and man fell, covenant with Abraham comes along, Moses redeems Israel from slavery, we begin to move to the height of the Davidic kingdom, right? Israel at its height... Isaiah comes, you've got these wicked kings and, and things get, they go from bad to worse until, they, of course, they divide after Solomon. You, you've got the two kingdoms now instead of one. And Isaiah comes at the point where Assyria is going to take the northern kingdom, which is the largest portion of them, away. And not too long following, you know, some 70, 80 years later, you're going to have the southern kingdom taken into captivity. So you're, 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 you're getting close to the very bottom of their earthly history. Okay? So, this is where Isaiah falls. That's a 
picture graph of what she was just saying, I think, right? <laughs> okay, what else might we say about Isaiah? Right. He starts to speak about what some refer to as a second exodus, which on the surface appears to be the exodus from ultimately Babylon back to the promised land. But as you read through the prophets, you discover that's really not what he was talking about because that all falls short of what he is talking about. But at least at the beginning, you think, okay, he's, he's talking about a second exodus. So he begins to develop this idea of another deliverance, which as you get through Isaiah, as we went through Isaiah this past year, it became clear in Isaiah that he's talking about freedom from slavery to sin in addition to talking about freedom from slavery in Babylon. I mean, that's 40 through 48, but then 49 and following, he's now gone beyond slavery to Babylon into slavery to sin and how we're going to be delivered from that. And there's another deliverer coming, not Cyrus, but the one that goes beyond him, which is the Messiah, the, the one born of a virgin. Now, so there's Isaiah kind of down here, pointing toward the Messiah. Okay, anything else we want to add about Isaiah? Yeah, I, I mean, this. I hope I'm not oversaying it, but I'm not sure that it wouldn't be safe to say and accurate to say, and please feel free to disagree with me, but, but I'm not sure it wouldn't be accurate to say that if, you know, if you take... It, by the way, the, the designations major and minor prophets are really only based on the size of the books. They're probably not the best designations in the world. However, I'm going to use them momentarily to my advantage. If Isaiah is a major prophet of the major prophets, it might well be said that he's the most major of the major prophets, which is to say he was not the first prophet because you had the historical prophets prior to that, but of the writing prophets, one of the very earliest of them. And it seems that so much of what the later prophets wrote was built on what he began, was built on the, the uh, ideas and concepts that were first laid out in that prophecy. So they're developed further even in Jeremiah and, and following. Now that might be slightly overstating the point, but I don't think it's uh, far from the mark. Uh, it's it's uh, significant to where he falls more specifically in that storyline. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, while while we discovered that one through thirty nine, whoops, thirty nine, do contain much about promise, we also discovered that, as they're known for, they have a lot to say about judgment. Okay, and they they really pronounce the judgment on Israel that ultimately comes to pass, ultimately and finally at the uh, time of Christ in its ultimate sense. So significant. Okay. Ezekiel. Where does he fit? It, it, it certainly seems that he does because he's prophesying from Babylon at points, right? So, 
if Isaiah's at the beginning of this uh, prophesied exile and he starts to talk about it, well, of course, then you've got Jeremiah who's at the point where they're going into exile. Now, Ezekiel, it's, it, you know, he's a little bit of some overlapping stuff here, but Ezekiel clearly uh, is prophesying from the river in Babylon. So, so to say that they're at the pit, I think it's a fairly safe description, right? I mean, they're there. If you're, if you're, if you're describing it in terms of uh, peaks and valleys, they're at the lowest part of that. Um, so Ezekiel fits into that storyline there. Now, what might, what might that tell us? I mean, what, what are some things we might glean from that as we think about where he is and when he's prophesying and what he sees? You might or might not be that familiar with Ezekiel, but if you're a little bit familiar with the book, um, what kinds of thoughts does that history, that storyline, where he's at in that storyline, tell us about what he's writing? Any thoughts there? Any speaks of, of, of some of these future things. He speaks a lot about a new heart and a new mind. You know, Jer- Jeremiah is the one who mentions a new covenant, but Ezekiel certainly spends a lot of time talking about how our heart and our, 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 our heart of stone needs to be replaced with a, a softer heart, a heart of flesh, and, and, and God's Spirit put within us. Um, this Isaiah speaks a lot of a new creation, but Ezekiel certainly picks up on and communicates that, and he speaks of a new temple doesn't he? speaks of a new temple. And that new temple, if you read the description of it, I mean, frankly, you can't build it. It's not a temple you can build with, with bricks and stone. So what kind of temple is it? Well, I think that's a clue that, that, that it wasn't intended to be a temple built with bricks and stone. So what is he, what is he pointing us to? It's new creation kind of, of talking. And so we got Ezekiel there. What else might we learn about Ezekiel? I'll suggest one. I find it fascinating that Ezekiel is not in the promised land and he's having visions of God on his throne. I think it reveals that God is not limited by geographical boundaries in dealing with his people. That we're beginning to see what Isaiah had pointed to now in Ezekiel becoming clearer and clearer. And actually, you see it all the way back in Genesis, but I don't take the time tonight to, to go there. But this idea that here he is in exile not at the temple, not in the promised land, and yet God is meeting with him. He's having visions of God. And the reality that God is not limited by the location of his people. But that it's him and relationship with him that is fundamentally going on. Because they're not there. Yeah. And so... He's king of the world. Now, he's no regional God. <laughs> That's good. What else might we say about Ezekiel? Anyone got anything else? And we can move on. I just want to... Right. Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot about that that's developed. I mean, themes that might be at present earlier in the Bible, but they're certainly coming to some fruition and really becoming graphic there, aren't they? Just vivid... Um, and so, remember, Jesus points back to this. In, in John 7, there's this ceremony where they pour the water. And, and on that day, he stands up and, and talks about the water 
you know, uh, flowing from within him. He's referring back to Ezekiel's temple and, and, and that ceremony on that day that they're doing that ceremony. He stands up and points to himself as the one from whom that's going to flow. And so there's so much rooted there in Ezekiel. But Ezekiel then would come, obviously, toward the end of the prophets, not the beginning of the prophets, I mean, as you look at it in, in terms of timeline. Um, Romans. Where is it in the storyline? Gentiles, so the church is spread. You've got the church <laughs> spreading to Gentile regions. I mean, and beyond. I mean, to the to the the farthest reaches of the uh, the known world from Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the center. Now you're in Rome. Now, of course, in the Roman Empire, they would have thought of Rome as the center, but the Bible never really deals with that. That's just not a reality for biblical thinking. So, this is far away from the center. Okay. Coming to the close of, uh, you mean in terms of world history with like emperor rule, uh, Rome and, and so forth? Yeah, I mean in terms of human history it fits into that time frame. Um, let's think in terms of redemption itself. You know? This is first telling us a little bit about redemption, right? Here we've got prophetic you know, speaking about what's going to come. Where are we at here, sir? Okay, so what does that tell us about what it's, where it is in location to the cross? It's after the fact. It's pointing back now and explaining the fulfillment to us. So, just based on where we're at, where would I expect to see the gospel most clearly explained? Here or here? Here, right? Not that it's not here. It is here. But I can only really see it clearly here in light of this. This is, I mean, I don't think Moses had the clarity that Paul had. No disrespect to Moses on, 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 on what things were. Just simply because of where he was located. Just not possible. And, and so, when I'm interpreting Scripture, the... Places like this with clear statements explaining the gospel need to help me understand places like that. So I must interpret the old in light of the new. And I must engage the old in a way that helps me understand it because according to Jesus, this is all speaking of Him. Okay. So just a, a, a brief, we don't want to spend too much time there, but just a brief you know, idea of you know, just thinking about where this is, it helps us, doesn't it? You don't want to get too carried away. But it just helps us understand where we're at and what's going on. Want to want to keep that in mind. Okay. Part three. Hermeneutics, art of interpreting scripture. Now, <clears throat> hospital regulations require a wheelchair for patients being discharged. Uh, while working as a student nurse, one fellow relates that he found one elderly gentleman already dressed and sitting on the bed with a suitcase at his feet who insisted he did not need his help to leave the hospital. 
This guy says in his own words, after a chat about rules being rules, he reluctantly let me wheel him to the elevator. On the way down, I asked him if his wife was meeting him. I don't know, he said. She's still upstairs in the bathroom changing out of her hospital gown. Okay, so... <laughs> it's always important to check behind closed doors, um, find out what's really going on, and not make assumptions when, just based on what you see on the surface. So, as, as we engage Scripture, I think tonight one of the things we want to, to, to learn is... is really not to make assumptions about things. And I just want to, I do want to do a brief review. We, we talked the first week and a little bit last week about this uh, approach. I, the, the um, and was it uh, uh, anachronism? Am I saying that right? Um, L-I-G-H-T. What's that? Acronym. Thank you. I don't even like using them, so I can't remember the word. Light. L-I-G-H-T. Um, look. Okay? Look at the text. Just look at it. Make some observations. Read it. What we did last week, going through Mark 1. Inquire. Pray. Inquire of God. Call on God. It's spiritually understood. Let's call out to God. That doesn't mean we just kind of morph over it and kind of, you know. But, but it, we do need God's help in understanding it as we engage it intellectually. Um, then we talked last week about geography. What, where, is, what, where is it on the map? What is the context of this particular text? Um, we also, both weeks, have talked about how does it teach me to worship God? That's the, the H, the hallelujah. How does this teach me to worship God? How, how am I supposed to, from this text, learn about worshiping God? How am I to respond in a Godward way? And then the T, transformation. What is the transforming effect that is intended to, to be in my life from this text. And so we, we looked at those things. Um, and I think that that process, to, if, if you can use that to help you keep those things in mind, whether you use that or something else, but those things are, I think, vitally important as we look at it. Now, geography includes something else that's uh, genre, and, and we want to talk about that more particularly tonight. Now, first, let's think about geography in particular, what we talked about last week, or where is it? Where is this? What Interpreting a text in light of its context. Where is it sitting in, in, in the Bible? Where is it sitting in the paragraph? Context is the portion surrounding a particular passage that we are studying. Literally, the word context means that which is with the text. With the text. Context. Uh, Thomas, is it Akempis? Is that the proper pronunciation? Akempis? Whatever it is. He said, what's that? Ah, that's what I thought. Thomas Hakempis said, in the Holy Scriptures, truth is to be looked for rather than fair phrases. All sacred scriptures should be read in the spirit in which they were written. But curiosity often hinders us in the reading of scriptures. For we try to examine and dispute over matters that we should pass over and accept in simplicity. If you desire to profit, read with humility, simplicity, and faith, and have no concern to appear learned. Ask questions freely and listen in silence to the words of the saints. Hear with patience the parables of the fathers, for they are not told without good cause. I, I think at least part of what he's getting at here <laughs> is if you're going to the text to leverage an argument, you're probably not going to get what it's intending to bring you. Uh, these disputes over matters, but, but rather go there to learn, to understand Christ, to worship God, to, to be transformed. Uh, and, and this point that 
there is vital. There is an original meaning and intention from the text. And the only way I'm going to learn the original meaning and intention of the text is to understand it in its context. Context is vital. Okay? Um, we aren't we aren't supposed to derive, you know, some word for today from the text that's divorced from its word for yesterday, 2,000 years ago, or whenever it was written. Whatever word it has for today, that must be directly somehow connected with its meaning for 2,000 years ago. And it doesn't mean that it means exactly to me today what it meant to them 2,000 years ago. For instance, a, a word that, that tells somebody to flee when you see the armies, um, it did mean for them to flee, and it doesn't mean that I need to flee today if I see an army. But, it does mean something for me today related to what it meant to them. Okay, and, and I won't go into that text in particular because it would take too long to, to draw that out. But, point being. Silly little illustration, but I think it's helpful. Chocolate is derived from cocoa beans. Beans are vegetables. Sugar is derived from either sugar cane or sugar beets. Both are plants which place them in the vegetable category. Thus, sugar is a vegetable. To go one step further, chocolate candy bars also contain milk, which is dairy. So candy bars are a health food. Sounds like, you know, something we should be eating lots of, right? Got your vegetables, you got, you got your, your dairy all in there. Well, you could arrive at that logically, but not necessarily accurately. You know, I, I think we've got to be careful when we start slicing and dicing human logic into text. When we just have to stop and say, what's the intention of the text? What is it? trying to communicate to us and, 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 and not, you know, I, I've, I've seen a lot of um, various, um, I've heard a lot of various um, end times teachings and, and in some of those you have a lot of charts and diagrams that you have to follow. And, and, and it, it, if you, you look at many of them, you'll discover that apart from the charts and diagrams, you could never actually find any of this in the Bible. I mean, if you don't have the charts and diagrams, you're, you're just plain lost on understanding what's being talked about. Well, I might just suggest to you that maybe the problem is having the charts and diagrams. We should just toss those and go with the Scripture because so much of that, you know, it's, well, Daniel said this and then Jesus and then so-and-so and then you put that together with this and pretty soon you've got eating candy bars is, is health food. And, and it's just that crazy. And so we, we've got to be really careful, I think, as we approach text. The present-day meaning and intention is never divorced from that of the originally intended meaning. I think it works like this. This, this is a, a description or an illustration that I think is helpful. It's like an old map. You know, a, an old map of a, of a city that's been around a long time. You may have this old map. Say you have a, a map from the 1800s of New York City. Now, on the surface, you might say this is a useless map. But not really. It's not entirely a useless map. It's not going to do the same thing as a modern map, but it is not a useless map. It's not that the map isn't true or the map isn't of value, but you have to do first some work to discover what was there when the map was written, what has changed, and what remains the same. And if you can do that, the map will actually be of real value to you and help you understanding some things differently than a modern map would. I mean, if you, if you just want to figure out where to go today and you're trying to follow directions, don't use that map. Use a modern map. 
But if you're trying to understand more of the city and what was where things are now and you're trying to understand the evolution of New York City, if you will, then I think that old map would be of great value, but it's going to take some work to understand. And, and really, that's the way we derive meaning from Scripture. It's kind of like that old map. Don't just read it like, oh, I take that and I apply it today. I'm going to turn right here and get where I'm going. No, but, but understand what things were like and understand the, the setting in which it was written and what it meant to them. And then find the application and understand the meaning for you rooted in that very meaning there. Does that make some sense? Helpful? Any other thoughts on that? Questions, thoughts? Anything else? Vitally important. It fights against our culture. I mean, it just screams against our culture. Or neither trying, I mean. talked last week about three primary levels of context. First being historical. That's the, you know, who wrote this? To whom was it written? What were the circumstances? That kind of data. When was it written? What was going on at the time? That kind of data. The second is the redemptive context, which is what we were talking about earlier. Where in the storyline of Scripture is this? Okay. What are we talking about here? What's going on there? And then thirdly was literary. Um, in the literary context, there are, there are three levels of context that we want to speak of. The first is the immediate. That's, that's the stuff just before or after the passage that is being studied. Uh, includes a paragraph before, maybe after the passage, as well as particular words in the passage and around it. Um, I'll give you an example of immediate context being important. Leviticus 10, verse 6. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkept. And do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. 
Now, on the surface, if that's the verse I have, and I read that verse, and somebody comes to me with that verse, and I'm completely unaware of the context, that verse could be used to say um, that, you know, it is wrong for a man to have unkept hair. That if a man has unkept hair, the Lord could be angry with him and he'll die. And I would use that with my son, if need be, uh, to make sure he gets a haircut. No, I'm kidding. I would not use that with my son, if need be, to make sure that he gets a haircut. But it could be used that way. And I've actually seen verses, maybe not this one, but similar verses used in similar ways, ignoring the context, to arrive at a theology that just doesn't quite fit. But if I go to the context, I actually discover that what's happened is that these two sons of Aaron, his two brothers just died. And they died because they were were dishonoring God and offering strange fire before the altar and the Lord's wrath came on them. And and basically, the Lord's saying, um, those guys aren't allowed to mourn their brother's death. So they can't let their hair become unkept because that's what you do when you're mourning. And I want them to maintain a steady hand and go forward because too bad, they've got a higher calling right now. And that's not to, to, to mourn their brother's death. Now, we can address that in some other context, but... Because of that context, it has nothing to do with how anyone's supposed to wear their hair on any other day of the week. It had only to do with their particular time and particular situation because to do so would have looked like they were mourning and they are not to be in mourning. Well, that changes the meaning of that entirely. And you can't use that to say that now God's telling me I can't let my hair be unkept because it has nothing to do with that for you today. It's something else to do with what God was doing in redemptive history at that time. And so we have to understand it in that context. So, remote context. That's kind of the distant. It is the maybe the preceding chapters in that book or even some other part of the same book. It's further away than just what's immediately around it. Um, one of the things that I think is, is, is helpful and we discussed under remote is what's the main idea of this section? What, what is this section about? Okay, so... Think of Mark 1. We, we, we talked about a lot of ideas out of Mark 1 last week. And we, we wrote all sorts of things up on the board. I'd say about half of them were pertinent. The other half were the... You know, it's like my, when I write ideas about a chapter, I, I write a bunch of stuff down. And when I'm done, I'm thinking, okay, that was helpful. That was stupid. That was helpful. That was dumb. That was... You know, you just kind of go through it and you just be glad you don't own your ideas. You just put them up there, you know. Thought crossed my mind. I wrote it down, you know. Maybe it's important. Maybe it's not. But, but you know, about half of them probably were pertinent and half of them eh, probably not. But... But one of the ways you can discover what's more pertinent than, than what's less pertinent is what's the main idea. So in general, let's just, let's just talk. What, if you were to summarize Mark 1, verses 1 through 20, if you had to, to hit on what is the, the main thing that that section is about, what would you say it is? Okay, Jesus coming and starting His ministry. I mean, certainly that, that's there. Can we, can we say... A little more about that or a little less about that or say it a different way. What a house would we might say that? Hmm? What's that? You went, I went, yeah. <laughs> That'd be a pretty one. Surely, surely we can add, we can we can add something, rightly or wrongly, to that. I mean um. Okay. Okay, so you have that element in there in the first part. John the Baptist is a prophesied forerunner. And Jesus is the one that he was forerunning, right? He was the one that, that you know, the one who was the Lord who was to come in fulfillment of these prophecies. Okay. 
I might say it this way, that, that the key thrust is for us to recognize that, that Jesus, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus, has its root not in his birth, but in the prophets. That, that what we're beginning to see in the gospel is the fulfillment of the prophets. And so he's announced with a prophet who's the fulfillment of a prophet who's announcing the fulfillment of prophecy. So that's a little broader. I mean, it's the same thing essentially as what Kalila said. But just broadening it out. But why is it important, whether I say it that way or this way, why is it un- the importance of understanding this key idea? If I start looking at what we had on the board last week, there are going to be all sorts of ideas, but some of them might get me further away from that idea, and others will help me get closer to that idea. The ones that are helping you get further away, those are the ones you need to toss. Because <laughs> they're probably not the good ideas that you had. Make sense? Because that key idea that that chapter is about ought to tether you toward the center of that chapter. And anything that gets off the end of that tethering shouldn't be there. Does that make sense? Um, Don Carson's a great quote. I had to include it in your notes. There is a kind of biblical preaching that is not so much unbiblical as trivial. <laughs> Not long ago, I heard a sermon on Luke 1, 26-38, in which the angel Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. The entire sermon focused on how God sometimes does unexpected things in our lives. I mean, I've got news for you. This is not uncommon kind of preaching. This is probably the most common kind of preaching that goes on in America today. And I find that grievous, but I, I think that, unfortunately, is, is very true. Entire sermon focused on how God sometimes does unexpected things in our lives. After all, Mary didn't expect to become pregnant in this way. The rest of the exposition focused on Mary's physiological and spiritual profile in all of this. A fair bit of what was said had some sort of relation to the text. Reasonable inferences were made. But none of the exposition, none of it at all, focused on Jesus. Whatever interest Luke has in saying something about Mary is minor compared with his interest in telling us who Jesus is. Five minutes of the sermon reserved for some reflection on Mary's outlook might have been appropriate. The loss of Jesus was not. Okay. And, and, and that is critical. I was in a, 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 a class on preaching. Um, it was called a, a preaching practicum. Had about 20 pastors come together. And we were to preach. Ten were going to preach, and all other 19 would evaluate and offer some observations and and so on and so forth. Uh, By God's grace, yes, I wasn't one of the ones who had to preach that time. I just simply got to evaluate, you know. Um, Not sure how that worked out, but, you know, they said next time the same 20 come back, the other 10 preach. So, you know, um, I guess my time's coming. But... um, of course, no names, but I, one of the messages was on John 4. And um, it was exciting. It was um, delivered well. It talked about the woman at the well. It centered on her and kind of uh, how she was affected by all of this. And at the end of it, one of the people, well, the question was asked, what can you all offer that was helpful from this message? And and people were offering things that you could tell. They were like, man, it was hard to find something worthwhile. 
in this message. Finally, one of the people that was leading the, the group, not one of the 20, but, but helping to lead the whole thing, said, I'm not sure that you could have done a more effective job of leaving Jesus out of a text that is so full of Jesus than what you did. <laughs> yeah, to the point. Um, <laughs> but you know what? If I was doing that, I would want to know that. And that, that was a young preacher who was in his first year of preaching. And I've got news for you. That's probably the best thing he could have heard. Because that'll, that'll help. And he received it, which is the good news. And, and he learned from it and that, because he's humble. And, and, but you know what? That is vital. That is so vital that we get... We, 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 we can't lose Jesus in the text. We, we must arrive at what the main thrust of that text is and let that help guide us through our, in, uh, our understanding of a text. Um, so what is it about? Let's not make it trivial. Now I want to get on to form. And that's really where I want to focus the rest of our time this evening by and large. Um, because I think this is probably, in, in, in at least, maybe not in seminaries, I, I don't know, but I would say in, 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 in churches and Bible schools where the average class on hermeneutics is going on, I would say this is probably, and this is a very uneducated opinion, by the way, but it's one I, I think is fair based on what I see. This is probably the most neglected aspect of hermeneutics that, that is out there today. And that is the issue of genre. Or if, if, if we're going back to the terminology of geography, we'll call it, you know, in geography you learn about where places are and you learn about the cultures of those places. What kind of foods do they eat? What kind of music do they listen to? What is, what is that culture like and how does it differ from this culture? Well, this would have to do with the culture of a text. What style is it written in? When we say genre, you can think of genres of music, jazz, and, and you, of course you've got smooth jazz and you've got classical jazz. and, 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 and So what's that? Acid jazz, fusion jazz, right? I mean, there's all these different kinds. And then you've got, of course, rock and all the different nuances of rock. And, and, and you know, so you've got all this different kind of music. And, and those are genres. And so there are different styles and different ways of communicating musical thought. Well, the Scripture has genres or literary forms, if you will. Um, poetry is one of those. Where would we find a lot of poetry? Psalms. You find a lot of poetry in the Psalms, right? But you'll find it mixed into other places and in other books. Um, we'll talk about others in a moment, but, but let me say this before we move on to these various genres. Let's, let's say this, and I think this is, I think it's important. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, I think just something we've got to recognize. The doctrine of inspiration of Scripture means that every word of Scripture is inspired. Not only, therefore, is each word inspired, but the very form of the communication is inspired. The literary form that God chose to communicate it in is how He inspired to communicate it. So if God gave something to us in poetry, He intended it to be communicated through poetry. If God gave us something through prophetic imagery or vision... He intended it to be communicated in that form. And so that if we're going to understand it in the way it was given, we have to understand it in light of the form that He chose to communicate it in. We have to understand that He's not just saying these words, but He's saying them in a give, given context, that context being its form, and that that form has rules about how you understand it. And, and so it's, it's not wrong. You know, people say, well, I just interpret the Bible literally. Well, if I can be really direct with you, I think that's really dumb. 
I do. Because it isn't all intended to be taken literally. If God had intended it to be taken literally, He would have used literal language throughout, but He clearly did not. And if you would interpret me literally all the time, well, you'd drive yourself crazy because it just wouldn't be good. My kids would be crazy if they interpreted me literally all the time. Just ask them. <clears throat> you know, nobody thought that Bill Cosby was communicating literally when he told his kids, or he tells people that he told his kids, kids, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Because if they did, they would have arrested him. But they know that that genre is comedy and they all relate to it because they've had the same thought, you know, if their parents, you know, <laughs> it's crossed their mind. And so they laugh. They don't call the police. That's a genre. And that's how it was communicated. Um, and, and that's important to recognize. And God gave a scripture through human beings. And if we read those human beings, we understand something about what they're writing because of what their circumstances were. We understand something about what they're writing because of who they were and what their history was. But we also understand something about what they're writing because of the form they chose to communicate it in. That helps us understand the, the meaning of the text. So, some of the different genres. And there are different ways of categorizing these. And you could expand on this or shrink it. But let's just walk through some of the genre. And, and by the way, some books don't have just one genre. Some of them have multiple genres within them. We'll talk a little bit about that. But historical narrative is a genre. In other words, we're having history communicated uh, to us through a story, a narrative. Okay? A narrative is just another way of saying a story, more or less. I mean, you've heard of a narrator. It's a guy who tells you the story. Well, narrative is story. The Bible is full of story. It's not entirely narrative, but there's a vast portions of it that are narrative. And if we don't understand narrative and how it communicates, we'll probably miss the meaning of vast portions of Scripture. So we want to understand narrative and how it communicates. Um, recently wrote a blog, and, 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 and I, won't, I won't mention names, but I, I think a fair question came. I wrote a blog on, on uh, uh, Cain building a city, and, 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 and then you, you look through Genesis, and you've got the descendants of Cain who are all building cities. And, and I just looked up this word build, and you've got the descendants of, uh, of, of um, Seth and, and, and of Abram who, you know, uh, who are all building altars for worship. And, of course, you've got the Tower of Babel that was built and then brought down. And, and I, I just wrote about how you know, it's fascinating that Cain, the murderer, is building a city. doesn't get along. Uh, and, 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 of course, the people of God are building altars of worship and, and made the connection to ultimately, of course, Christ is building a city, but not the same city Cain is building. It's a city in which we love one another and not hate one another. And I drew this, this, this picture. Now, somebody asked the question on my, you know, responding back to me is, you know, where do you see that in the text? I think it's a fair question. It's an excellent question. It's a good question. And, 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 and my answer in short, if I were going to give a short answer to it, would be that I see it there because of the genre in which it's given. The genre being the narrative, both in Genesis and in the Bible's narrative, when we talk about biblical theology, remember last week we talked about biblical theology? It's these stories. I mean, it's almost like you've got a cord or a rope that's got all these strands, like thousands of strands going through it. And 
each one of those strands runs from one end to the other. So this morning we talked about the pure in heart can see God. And you notice how I took that from the beginning of the Bible and we ran. We could have gone all the way to the end of the last chapter of Revelation where we see God face to face. That's one of those strands that runs all the way through. We could take sacrifice and we could take you know the blood that's being shed and run that all the way through. Probably more central maybe to some of the themes of Scripture. We could take... Um, and, and you can run. I mean, you can run that with, with last week, mercy. Mercy all the way through the Scripture. You can find these themes. You can take wedding. I, for Lindsay and David's wedding, I took this idea of, of, of the wedding at the beginning of the Bible and the wedding at the end of the Bible, and we, we ran this story of wedding all the way through. It's one of those chords that, that runs through Scripture. Well, I think the building of a city is one of those because you find it there at the beginning, but you find it at the end when the city has been built by Christ Himself. And so... That genre, both of narrative in Genesis and of the biblical storyline, the biblical theology going back to the redemptive context, I believe, now again, not flawless on this, you know, I, I'm open to, to, to saying, you know, maybe I blew it on this, but I believe it gives me the license to, to connect that storyline through Scripture. And, and so, it's, it's a stylistic issue. Is it obvious right on the surface? that Did I see it the first 20 or 30 times I read those chapters or years I went through? No. But as I go through it and I see this city building thing going on, I, I think it's there. I think it's a fair assessment. Could be wrong, but I think it is. Um, historical narrative. Poetry. Um, we'll, we'll give examples of that. Law. God's giving commands. You've got this law and in, in, the, in the law setting up you know for how the civil uh, uh, life in Israel was supposed to be they've got these laws and things that are there to understand those texts we have to understand it in the in the genre in which is given we have epistles or letters that are written from somebody to another person or group of persons we have the writings of prophets now the writings of prophets um, please don't try to understand them like epistles you're going to get in trouble because man they, they say all sorts of wild things um, I mean, writings of prophets, I mean, maybe, maybe they're clearer to you, but they are not clear to me. I like narrative. It's a little easier for me. I get narrative. Prophets, you know, it takes a little more work for me. A little slow on the uptake on that. But writings of prophets. And then you've got apocalyptic, which sometimes is lumped in with prophetic, but there's really quite a big distinction between prophetic and apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, you have it within the prophets in, in places and pieces, um, certainly the book of Revelation is, is apocalyptic. It's these visions and dreams of things that are otherworldly. And I mean, it's, it's almost this caricature of what's going on or this kind of a cartoon of, of animation of, of what we can't see that's taking place behind the scenes. And you've got um, uh, uh, beasts with horns and crowns on horns and you know, people riding these beasts. And I mean, it's the kind of stuff dreams are made of, you know? I mean, like you have a really bad dream and you think, about, oh, wow, you, get, you wake up and it's like, that was some scary stuff. Well, apocalyptic kind of falls over into that realm of the way things come. If I, were, if I were to tell you, hey, if I came in here tonight and I said, hey, I had a dream last night. Um, in, in this dream, I was, I was in a, a skyscraper. And, and as I'm in the skyscraper looking out, um, I, I saw uh, a city that was full of darkness. But then all of a sudden... Uh, a light came down from heaven and struck the skyscraper. And then from the skyscraper, light went out to the whole city. And suddenly these dark places became light. Now, by the way, I'm making this up as I go along, but here's the point. If I said that, and, and, and you heard that, none of you would think that 
literally some light's going to come from heaven and strike a skyscraper that I'm actually going to be in, you, you'd start thinking, what, what is the meaning behind that? You'd start thinking about, is that a picture of something about the, the light of God's grace coming and spreading to a city from a, a high point in a city, a city on a hill? Maybe you'd start making connections like that to biblical... You, you wouldn't assume it was intended to be a literal thing because the format in which I'm giving it is a dream. You would assume something about that in how you were trying to understand it. But don't try to understand that because it was completely fabricated. <clears throat> but understand the point that, that's being made. Uh, that's kind of apocalyptic. Uh, wisdom literature. Um, the book of Proverbs. Okay, um, You've also got I mean, wisdom literature actually can include much of... Uh, well, some would include, like, depending on how broadly you're defining things, you could call wisdom literature Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Am I missing one in there? Um, anyway, I think that I've, I've got those. But um, y- y- that could be called wisdom literature. But on a more specific sense, wisdom literature would probably uh, more, more include some of the Psalms and, and, and the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, of course, a song of, of, of Solomon would be, be poetry, um, a song, quite literally. Uh, uh, Job, is it wisdom literature? Yes, in, in, in the broad sense, it absolutely is. It's, it's, uh, uh, in other ways, it's, it's a lament. I think you can you could take a lot of that book and call it a lament. And, 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 and it's, so it fits in that poetic. It's poetic. I mean, there's a lot to it. It's, it's a big story. I mean... It, but, but is the book of Job, here, here's the distinction that I want to make with it. Is the book of Job an historical narrative? No, I don't think the book of Job is a historical narrative. Is it historical? Well, I think we might call it historical wisdom literature or historical poetry. I mean, that, you know, you could almost say it might be a, a, a genre kind of unto itself in terms of the Bible. Because it's, it's unique in a lot of ways. And by saying that, I'm, what I'm trying to, to point at is this. Do I think Job was a real guy that actually lived and had those problems? Yes. Okay. Do I think the book of Job is Job sitting down and dictating exactly how it happened and the way it happened and all the words that happened? No. I don't. I think that God inspired Job or somebody after the fact to write an account, a communication of what happened with Job and God's dealings with Job in a way that an audience could grasp and understand it and and learn theology about God and how He deals with man. So as I read that book, I'm I'm, I'm recognized some scholars would would actually posit. Um, You can't prove it at this point, but they're positing the idea based on structure and what they know about you know how literature was done at that time that that the book of job is written as it were as a as a maybe i'm using the wrong term but a play a skit uh, uh, so that it would be presented to an audience where you've got these minimal number of characters that come in and out of the scene and relate the account of what god was doing in job's life now does that discount the inspiration of job no not at all it informs me if that's true and again, you can't always know for sure that you know what the author intended, as we talked about earlier. But you can at least try, and you might have it, even if you don't know you do have it. And, but it, that kind of thing helps me inform me, say, one possibility with Job is that, that this is, is a way, and as I envision that going on, it helps me get a picture of what's being communicated and go, wow, that's, that's rich, that's deep. What am, I, what am I learning about God through this? 
So I don't think Job's any less historic. But in the process, I'm learning about some things from God. So this, this, the way this is being communicated and the way it's being said, it, it's informing me. And I'm, I'm learning about trials and suffering and the interactions of man and God. And why are we getting this book? At the end of the day, I have to ask that question. Why is God giving us the book of Job? Not just so that I know about how Job suffered, by the way. I'm getting this book because I suffer and people I know suffer. And I'm learning something about suffering in our relationship with God and how not to deal with people who are suffering because Job had plenty of that and how I might interact with God while suffering. So, so there's so much to be gained from that. Does that make sense? What is the genre? What is, what is taking place? Um, there's, there's exposition. And I, one example, the book of Hebrews, many scholars believe, is an actual full-length sermon written out that, that would have been an early church sermon. So we have an actual sample sermon from the early church. And actually, that would be, I think, presently the majority of scholarship would agree on that position regarding the book of Hebrews. I don't know for sure that it's a majority, but I've read it several places and haven't heard much to contend it. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, that it certainly seems to be that. I like the logic. It makes sense. If it is, it, it, it certainly, and this may be why I like it, if you read the book of, of, of uh, Hebrews, um, it, it would take a, about 50 minutes to deliver. So it justifies the length of my sermons. And, and so I think that that must be what it is. No. But, but actually what it is, it's an exposition. He's taking Old Testament text. He's expositing and explaining them and, and telling them in, in, in the storyline of redemption and applying them to his audience. It's really amazing. It exalts the deity of Christ. It's, it's a brilliant sermon in so many ways and, and um, uh, quite helpful. But exposition, biographical sketches. You know, you, you have these sketches of people. I mean, you, you know, through the Gospels, you have sketches of various people in there. You, you have... Uh, things being told about people in some of the epistles. You, you have um, Ruth, the book of Ruth, where you have this storyline. It's historical on the one hand, but you're getting particular stories about particular people that are rather biographical. Um, now, the Gospels are a genre unto themselves. Let's just, let's just think about those for a moment. I think, I think the New Testament introduced an entirely new genre to the world called Gospel. Because there really isn't any other genre that fully fits the Gospels. One would say, well, they're biographies. Well, not really. Biographies aren't written the same way that the Gospels are written. The Gospels have an intended message that they are communicating. They are preaching the Gospel. They are taking eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and they are organizing and coordinating them in such a way as to communicate theological content. And, and while they are biographical in many ways you're not going to find some of the pertinent data that you might want to collect about Jesus. You ever notice that you're not told what color his hair is or his eyes? You're not told what size his shoes were. You're not told whether he's tall or short. I mean, there's just so many things that you'd expect to find in a biography, quite frankly, that you're not told anything about. Because they have no intention of telling you those things. That's not the purpose of their writing. Their purpose, as John puts it, would be to, that you might believe in the Son of God and have eternal life. So He's giving you what's pertinent to know about Christ that you might have eternal life. That drives the theology. 
Um, for instance, that helps me when I consider... And sometimes people really struggle as they're reading through their, their Gospels, you know, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they'll run across a, a, a story in one of the Gospels that comes before a story in another Gospel, or maybe, you know, the order is reversed, or a detail is left out in one that's not left out in the other. And it almost seems like in, in, in Mark, you, you've got an account where there's one blind man that gets healed, and in Matthew, it's two blind men. And, and sometimes people really struggle with that as if that's a contradiction. But it's not. It's not a contradiction at all when you understand the genre. The genre is that we're communicating truth about Jesus Christ, making a particular theological point. So the author is knowingly and admittedly bringing in the facts that bear to the argument that he's making. Kind of like if you're in a court and you're trying to make an argument, the judge might ask you, can you show us pertinence? Because if you can't show us pertinence, can you just shut up? I mean, you know, basically. I mean, in other words, don't, don't, go on with details that have nothing to do with the case. And that's what the gospel writers are doing. They're bringing details that have something to do with the case that they're making about Jesus Christ. So for Matthew, it's important that there were two here and two here, these two blind men. For Mark, that had really nothing to do with the point that he's making. He's making a different point using the same account and eyewitness story of Jesus. Uh, I know I've seen in, in, in my almost 50 years of life, I've seen a lot of things. I've experienced a lot of things, and I will frequently tell stories at different times to people, the same story to different contexts to different people, and sometimes to make a different point. And when I'm telling the story for one point, I will tell it and add details that I might not use when I'm telling it for another point because they have nothing to do with the point that I'm making. It doesn't mean that it was less true one time when I told it than the other. It just means that it wasn't relevant. Mark didn't find it relevant that there was a second guy at that particular point, so he didn't bring it up. Matthew found it relevant. So then, when I'm studying Matthew, I need to ask the question, why is it relevant? It might help me. And, and so, knowing that there's a, a, a theological point that's being written, I, I, as I look at the stories, I sometimes need to ask the question, why did Luke, for instance, just as an example, put this these three stories together without anything happening in between. Whereas Matthew has two or three other accounts happening interspersed through them. I mean, is one of them right and one of them wrong? No. So you've got to understand in, in, in the Gospels, chronology is not driving the story. Theology is driving the story. So Luke, quite frankly, I think at times, has no regard for when things happened. In other words... When it happened in the storyline isn't as significant as what happened and what the point is he's making at the time. So he might, Jesus, you know, he, he tells a story and then he'll say, and one day Jesus did this. Well, it might have happened six months later, but he's telling the story here because it has the same point as the one here and he wants the audience to get that. He's striking the nail two or three times in a row. Mark will strike a nail two or three times in a row for the nail that they're hitting. Well, Mark might have one nail and Luke has another and with the four Gospels, we're getting the nails we need. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me on that? So don't, let, don't get stumbled over things that are in different order or different sequence because the genre allows that. The audience originally would have had no problem with that kind of thing because that wasn't what they were... They, they weren't trying to get a chronology. And here's where you have to be careful with... Um, you ever seen the Harmony of the Gospels? You know, 
I think that's a healthy study for some people to do is to try to create a harmony of the Gospels and understand what happened and when. I'm not sure that they'll ever be satisfied with their harmonies because you're trying to, to force a chronology upon something that wasn't necessarily intending to give us a chronology. But here's the, my only real concern with it. I mean, because I think that's a healthy study. My concern would be this. Don't study the Gospels as a harmony. They weren't given as a harmony. Study them the way God gave them because that's how he intended us to have them. So when I study the Gospel of Matthew, I want to study the Gospel of Matthew. And I might compare some things to Mark and Luke and John so that I can learn about what Matthew is including and not including and maybe ask the question as to why he does or doesn't. But I don't want to just take the four Gospels, chop them up and glue them back together in a different format because then I'm not having the story. I'm missing the story that, one of the, that Matthew's telling, that Luke is telling, that Mark is telling, that John is telling. They're given to me for a particular reason. Now, when we think about genre, nobody believes that the Beatles really live in a yellow submarine. You don't have to convince anybody of that. Yet they've sang it and recorded it, and it's been played millions of times. Yet nobody believes it. Why? Because everybody understands the genre of music and that they didn't really mean literally that they do that. And we do it all the time. Um, in Psalm 91, he'll cover you with feathers under his wings, you will find refuge. Nobody reads that and thinks God is a bird um, or a chicken. In, in Exodus 15:9, we read, The enemy boasted, I will pursue and I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. Nobody really believes that they were talking about cannibalism at that point. Okay? The, the chiefs of Edom in Exodus 15 will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. No one thinks that they will literally melt. Okay, that it's an expression of fear. Okay, we understand that because we just we naturally interpret genre that's genres that we're more familiar with. Um, prophetic and apocalyptic genres are highly symbolic. Uh, go to Ezekiel chapter seven. Where did I put my Bible? I had one when I came in, I think. <laughs> hmm. I left it in my office. Anyone have a Bible I can bum? There we go. Thank you. Good, you found the book of Ezekiel for me. That was helpful. It really struggle if I hadn't. You know. Ezekiel chapter 7. Um, no, Isaiah is the only one I've got memorized right now. <laughs> but thank you. Um, <laughs> Oh my. Um, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end! The end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you. And I will unleash my anger against you. And I will repay you for all your detestable practices. Now, was he talking about the end of the world. I mean, this sounds like Chicken Little running around, right? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. D did the end come upon Israel then? Yes and no. It, it wasn't the end that you might think when you hear that the end has come upon you. And if I stood up tonight and I said, the end is here! In our context, everybody would think, oh, he's talking about the end of the world and he's gone crazy. Okay. Or you'd say, okay, what mountain are we going to? I mean, you know, I mean, what spaceship do we get in? I, I don't know. It depends on who you are and what your background is. But um, 
<laughs> so, so, but in Ezekiel's day, he, he, he shouts, the end, the end, the end is here. Was it? What end is he talking about? We have, to, we have to contextualize that because this is prophetic genre and it's communicating um, disaster in these very black and white terms. This very, you know, end has come upon the land. The world is coming to an end is essentially what he's saying. Well, their world was, at least the world as they knew it. We get an example of this kind of communication. I remember the day after 9-11. It might have been the same evening of 9-11, but the, the news commentary that evening was this. The world, as we've known it, has come to an end. Literally? No. But is that a true statement? Absolutely. It had come to an end, and we've been living in the reality, and some of you don't even remember the way it was. You know you are too young at the time. But life has changed for all of us. Um... The world as we know it has come to an end. The end is here. That's kind of the Ezekiel language. <laughs> Your world, Israel, is now coming to an end. You thought the party was going to go on forever. The party's over. Okay. Um, Hosea 6, 5 says, Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you. Did God literally cut his people in pieces with the prophets? I mean, did the prophets go around with swords cutting the people in pieces? I think not. It's what's that? Just yeah, yeah, just Elijah, um, and and um, so uh, you have these kind of statements that are here, um, or who's who's uh, Samson, and uh, who's the uh, who's the the king that he whacked um, to pieces? I mean, literally just chopped him to pieces. So you do have that, but that's not what he's talking about here, is it? Micah. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, you who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, trip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot? Did they literally do that to the people of Israel? No. They didn't literally do that. This is figurative language. It's not intended to be taken literally. So... If we're going to understand these texts, we have to understand them the way they're intended to communicate. Does that make sense? I'm not asking people to do anything crazy. I'm not suggesting that this gives you a license to just make the Bible mean anything you want it to mean. In fact, quite the contrary. I think this restricts you to seeking to understand what the Bible meant when it was written and applying that meaning. Quite the contrary to saying, that, oh, now you have a license to make it anything you want. No. I think when you go that literal ideology that you get a license to make it mean whatever you want because you can't take things like this literally. So then what do you do? Well, that's when they just start making it up. I had a guy, I think I've shared this, but a guy talk about um, uh, taking the Bible literally and that's the only way to interpret it. And he was doing a teaching out of the book of Revelation and on end times and a little later in the teaching he read that part about these locusts that had these uh, metal faces and different, I mean it was just kind of, crazy description that you have over there in Revelation. He said, those are, I don't forget, it was a Huey helicopter or some sort of uh, military helicopter. And I'm thinking to myself, I thought you said something about literal. And I think that says locusts that have metal. I'm not really sure. But the fact is, you can't take that literally. He couldn't. I can't. Nobody can. So you have to say, what does it mean? What does it mean? And I don't think the author intended to be communicating about Huey helicopters. I just, I don't know. You think John the Apostle had any intention? You think... No, I don't think so. And of course, somebody would say, well, but maybe Jesus 
intended to communicate about Huey helicopters, and John didn't know it, so he had to use this. Well, maybe, but I'm going to suggest to you that John understood what he was communicating better than we do. So let's just kind of start with that assumption and try to understand what he understood and, and go with that, because uh, otherwise you're going to get in some real trouble. Okay, wisdom literature. You know, you go to the book of Proverbs. You know, the whole Bible's about Jesus. How do you find Jesus in the book of Proverbs? Well, let me suggest that you don't just try to turn every verse into a statement about salvation and Jesus, but I think you do find Christ in the wisdom literature. For all wisdom finds its ultimate fulfillment in the redemption of fools. Christ has become wisdom from God for us. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Proverbs 26.12 tells us, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, I think that gives us a foretaste of the gospel. For the gospel is for all who see that they're fools. And those that are wise in their own eyes, they have no hope. Because he came to save the lost. So I, I think we see in wisdom literature, and I think what drives the book of Proverbs at large, is this idea that, that fools see themselves as wise, and the wise see their own folly. It's amazing how the wise don't see themselves as wise in the book of Proverbs, but are constantly studying to find wisdom because they know they don't have it. But the fool is the one who is self-confidently wise. And boy, if there isn't a gospel parallel in there and how Christ has become our wisdom from God, I, I don't know what is. So there, there's much. Now, in the book of Proverbs, you have a variety of genre within it. I mean, wisdom literature is a broad category, but the first chapter tells us that there's parables and there's riddles and there's teachings and sayings of the wise. So all of those are different aspects of genre. Uh, so, for instance, um, I, I'll share this. I think I can find it real quick. Uh, if I'm right, it's Proverbs 26. If I'm wrong, well, I probably shouldn't go there. But Proverbs 26. It helps me to know that there are riddles in the book of Proverbs. It tells me there are riddles. Aha. This is one of those verses that puzzled me as a teenager. I mean, I spent perplexing hours over this going, what in the world is wrong with this? Uh, and then I applied it wrongly so many times. But verse 4, Proverbs 26, 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Okay, so I've got some pretty clear instruction. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Good, I, I can do that. I, I get that. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Okay, which one is it? And of course, for years I concluded what well, must mean that I have to figure out which one to apply when. Well, that's a little hard for me because, you know, frankly, I think I'm going to get that wrong, okay? So, what am I supposed to make of that? And, and, and it dawned on me a few years back that that's a riddle. And right in the context of the book of Proverbs and even that particular chapter, actually the riddle is not hard to untangle. Think about it. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be, you'll be like him yourself. So what's the worst possible outcome? If, if I do answer him according to his folly, I become like the fool. Okay. In light of the book of Proverbs, in light of the chapter here, yeah. more hope um, for, for me if I'm not a fool. I mean, a fool's not the, the goal of the book of Proverbs. So, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Now, truthfully. So, that's my temptation when a fool is railing me. 
is it not? Is that I should answer him according to his folly, lest he remain wise in his own eyes and he thinks he gets away with this. That's my heart temptation when dealing with the person railing against me is I, I want to get in that jab. I, I want to I get it in because if I don't get it in, he's going to think he's right. But of course, if I read the rest of the book of Proverbs, I realize that there isn't anything I can do to keep a fool from thinking he's right in his own eyes. A fool is wiser than his, in his own eyes than seven men can give a reason for. So, so, so the riddle is rather clear. You have to make a decision. Which outcome do you want? Is, is it worse for you to become a fool? Or is it worse for the fool to be wise in his own eyes? Well, the answer is it's worse for me to become a fool. So I do not answer a fool according to his folly. Lest I become like him myself. Because frankly, the fool's going to remain wise in his own eyes no matter what I do at the end of the day. So it's a riddle. And when I catch it in its context, that helps me grab hold of the, the meaning of it. So just a thought. Um, this has to do, you know, again, genre. Um, what's the genre of Job? We talked about that. I mean, it's helpful in understanding it. Um, in closing, let me just give some other considerations on, on interpreting Scripture. We could spend a whole other lesson on these, but we won't. Thank you. Um, first, the danger of isolating verses. Um, there's a variety of ways we do this. I mean, I think it's good to have some va- favorite Bible verses. But, you know, don't, don't have your favorite Bible verse and always think of it by itself. Um, it, it has a context that it comes in. Understand the context. Uh, promise boxes are a funny thing. You know the little promise box? You've got the cards in them and you've got to pull out the verse for the day. Not inherently wrong. I mean, it's, that's fine. Um, but I think sometimes we, we pull out promises without saying, okay, the Bible wasn't given to us as a promise box. The Bible was given to us as a storyline, as letters, as... I mean, the context of the Bible is different than a promise box. Um, and, and, and so, for instance, when you get the promise box, a popular verse in a promise box might be Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That's a great promise, isn't it? But I... I think I need to understand the context of that promise because if I look at it in Jeremiah 29, the Lord has just gotten through telling them that He's going to send them into captivity and they need to settle down because they're going to be there for 70 years. For I know the plans I have for you. They're for your good. They're not for your bad. Really? You know, personally, I think not going into captivity is a much better idea. And if we do go into captivity, frankly, I'd like to go back home as soon as possible. But the Lord is saying, no, I've got a promise for you. My plans aren't to harm you, though it's going to feel like it. There's a difference in getting that verse by itself than in getting it in its context. So don't isolate verses. At least don't make too big of a habit of it. Um, you know, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. That's a great verse. People love to pull that one out to explain why they don't need to go to church. Oh. But if you go to the context, you find that it's actually about the, the significance of the church gathered and what God does in the midst of the church. I mean, that's, that's completely divorcing it from the meaning that it had in the context that it had. Uh, actually, Jesus is assuring them that He'll be there as the church makes decisions regarding church discipline and the like. Very different than, well, me and my two buddies meet at the coffee shop and we talk about the Bible. That's church. So, um, so now, 
Is that Christians having fellowship? Absolutely. And if you're the only three Christians in town and that's the only place you can legally meet, it might be church. And he will be in the midst of you. But if that's just your way of re- ignoring others and living under yourself, eh, it has nothing to do with the idea of church. You tracking with me? Let's not pull it from its context. Or how about Philippians 4.13? Here's a favorite. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, that's a true statement, uh, you know. But we've got to put some parameters on it. Everything? I mean, okay. I, I can go, next year I'm going to be in the NFL. And I'm going to be a quarterback on a team. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Right. I'm going to be Tim Tebow, yeah. Um, I, you know, frankly, I can't be in the NFL. I've got news for you. Okay? I, I could never have been in the NFL. It was not really an option for me to work hard enough, believe hard enough, and try hard enough to get in the NFL. I don't have the frame. I don't have the muscular structure. I don't have the drive. I don't have the hands. I I do not have the skill. And I could not develop the skill to be in the NFL. I can play flag football. I can keep up with the best of the other 50-year-old guys, okay? (laughs) And when when I was 20... I could keep up with some good guys playing yard football too. And I could catch the ball. And I could go home feeling like I might have made it good in the NFL. But that would be a complete and total deception had I really believed that. Okay? Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in context is a little different than than how it's commonly taken in our culture. Paul was talking about having to suffer and things going well. Having lack and having plenty. And I can... I can make it through all of those through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever He calls me to live through, I I can do that. That's different than how we usually hear that verse used. Briefly, the danger of concordance studies. Don't hear me wrong. Keep your concordance, it's fine. Or use your Bible concordance, or your computer concordance, or whatever you use, that's fine. I use them too. Uh, but, But looking up a word to find all the passages in the Bible that talk about a given topic by using your concordance to find it is not bad, but it is not complete. It can be a healthy practice, but don't think you've covered the gamut by doing that. Um, so, for instance, you might want to study faith, so you look up the word faith. And you could do a, a, a biblical study on the word faith, and you might tell somebody, I've studied everything the Bible has to say about faith. No, you haven't. Because I can tell you this, that the book of Daniel is, if you want to pick one theme that drives that book, it's a, story, it's a book about faith and what it means to, to live by faith. But the word is not mentioned in the book one time. So, you know, is it? Is, is it? Uh, have I covered what the Bible has to say about faith? Not necessarily. If I look up love, I can find all sorts of things about love, but there are many chapters and verses in the Bible about love that might not use the word love. So, be careful thinking that you've covered the gamut on that. So I'm just, this is a caution that could lead to a danger. It's not an exclusion of using your concordance to do these things. You can't just collect every verse on a topic and give each verse equal weight. Their location in redemptive history has something to do with how they weigh into that discussion. Um, You can find a word like love, for instance, in a text or faith in a text. And you might use that verse, and that might be well and good, but that verse in, in its context may not really be about love or faith. Now, those are kind of broad categories, so maybe they are, but, you know, pick a topic. 
it might have the word, but not really be about that. And you might be taking that as being really weighty on that subject. When in its context, it's really not, that's not the driving point of the text. Just be careful. Is context always important in Scripture? Are there some portions where it isn't necessary, like the book of Proverbs, where you know, they seem to be kind of loosely assembled, these, these verses together? Well, I would say this, that there are many passages in which the importance of context cannot be clearly seen, as in the book of Proverbs. In some passages, it's difficult to see the connection between one verse and the next. With that said, I think three things should be remembered. One, don't assume too quickly that there's no connection. Err on the side of intended connection, even if I have to conclude that I don't see the intended connection. Okay, in other words, even in the book of Proverbs... I, I like to err on the side of thinking that there might be some logical sequence to these things, even though nobody's really stumbled across very many of them yet. Okay? Um, I don't think that means that it couldn't be there. It could be there, at least more than we think. And there are scholars that are wrestling with that issue, particularly in the book of Proverbs, and I, I think that's a healthy discussion. Um, I, I find too frequently that, that scholars, uh, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, will approach that sermon as if it's just kind of these, you know, Matthew wanted to take these various sermons of Jesus. He had some really good sayings. He wanted to kind of put them together in a place. And so he gathered together and, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And, and hence, verses like not throwing your pearls before swine uh, are, are taken to be completely unassociated with the immediate context. And so they sound so contradictory, but, you know, we just kind of say, well, but Matthew just kind of put it here. Maybe it wasn't the best choice or <laughs> something like that. That's, to me, a very unwise way to approach the Bible. I, I want to assume continuity. I want to assume that Matthew knew more of what he was doing than I do. Go figure. And, 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 and so I want to, I want to work with that uh, assumption. Um, so don't assume too quickly there's no connection. Secondly, do not try to produce a connection that is not there. So don't force a connection either. Just wait. If you don't understand a connection, that's fine. You don't have to get it this year or next. You can get it one day. That's fine. Don't assume a connection that you, you or force a connection. And, and thirdly, even in the case of Proverbs and certain other passages that would appear to have no connection between the verses and so forth, the broader context of the author, the historical setting, the genre of the Bible must always be taken into consideration, even if I conclude that nothing in the immediate context has bearing on the direct meaning of that particular passage. Um, I still must take it in those broader considerations. Um, so despite some exceptions, the first rule of interpretation stands, interpret Scripture in light of its context, its historical context, its redemptive context, and its literary context. Uh, amen? Questions, thoughts, comments, Sarah? Mm-hmm.